Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna. Those have been the words that the crowd that was surrounding Jesus as he made his way into Jerusalem would have been screaming out at the top of their lungs. It's not a word that we use oftentimes in our modern vernacular. Even in the church world, it's maybe something that we sing in a song uh, from once every blue moon. And a lot of us have no idea what this word Hosanna means. But the reality is, guys, this word Hosanna, I think, fits a lot with the time that we're living in right now. See, the nation of Israel, as they were screaming out this word Hosanna, they knew that it meant save now. Or please save now. And I know for us right now, we're not asking um, for the, Jesus to come in and like they were asking and trying to say, save us from this Roman government. Save us, from a, save us and make us royalty. A lot of us right now, we're saying, Jesus, save us from what's happening around us. Save us from coronavirus. Protect my family. Protect my people. Protect my income. Protect my kids. Protect my, my, old, my elderly family members. Protect us, Jesus. Jesus, save us. We're kind of in the same place of shouting out, Hosanna. And so it's, it's, it's kind of eerie when you think about how Palm Sunday, for us at least in America, has kind of came at this same time when the fever pitch of coronavirus is also happening at the same time. And the same words that were on the people's lips as Jesus was coming into the city is kind of what's on our lips, not in the word Hosanna, but in the same uh, prayers that we're shouting to God going, would you save us? Would you help us? Would you protect us? But one of the things that's fascinating about this word Hosanna is its meaning actually began to shift from the time of the early church and as it began to be something that really became associated with the, the church movement and how it was going. And where initially it became this cry of saying, um, Jesus, help us, save us. And it was a cry for help. As the church progressed and as we began to see this reality that Jesus had saved us, it went from being a cry of help to being a cry of hope. And my prayer is, as we uh, enter into Holy Week, as we dive into today, Palm Sunday, that Hosanna on the lips of us would be the same thing, that we would make even an internal heart shift from saying, Jesus, help us, Jesus, save us, that we would begin to even say, Hosanna, whispering under our breath when we're putting on hand sanitizer, whispering under our breath as we're wiping down doorknobs. And it would become not a cry for help, but it would be, become a cry of hope for God's people. And so today, that's, that's what I want to do. As we dive into Palm Sunday, my prayer is that this story would bring you the hope that you need. And let's gather together and pray, and then we're going to dive in uh, to this passage today. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and go to Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to be. But let's pray, and we're going to dive in. Abba Father, you sent your Son to earth in the form of an innocent baby. And you sent him for the week that we're getting ready to end to. That he would make his way into a city that he would be praised by the people, that they would say bless him, that they would want to make him a king, that they would shout Hosanna in the highest. In the same few days, they'd use those same voices to shout crucify. And Jesus, we know how this week ends. And I pray the fact that we know how Holy Week ends would give us hope now in the midst of not knowing where shelter in place ends, where coronavirus ends, where financial insecurity ends, with increased anxiety level ends, in the midst of not knowing how all of those stories may end, I pray that we can know how this story ends and that we as your people 
we go from that victory, we go from that triumph, and we allow that to be what carries us through. In your name, amen. All right. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to start out reading here in Mark chapter 11. Uh, it's the story of the triumphal entry. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. We're going to go uh, through to verse 10. All right, So uh, just track with me if you've got your Bible. Uh, you can do that if you're watching from your phone. You can pull it up on there. Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be at. This is what it says. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And they went, and they found the colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, someone, some people standing there asked, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the ground, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Let's dive into this, guys. If you've got a Bible, we're going to start right there. With, with verse 1. And one of the things that I want you to see in this is that there are really three, th- three things, three things in particular that I believe will help us in this passage see about how Jesus and who he really is and about how he can actually help us and give us hope in the midst of what we're going through right now. If you're taking notes, you can kind of write these three, da- three things down. They're kind of be the three big points for our talk today. It's the cult, the crowd, and the crown. Those are the three things that we can see in this. And if we can dive into what we learn from these things on both a head and a heart level, I believe they can give us hope for what we're experiencing right now. First thing uh, that we're going to approach here is this this colt that we see. It's, it's crazy that this is the donkey that gets more play than any other donkey in, in all of Scripture. And one of the things that's fascinating about this story, if you know a little bit about the Passover feast, so the nation of Israel, this was their biggest holiday. It was the biggest thing that they celebrated for, for the Jews. It's still the biggest thing that they celebrate. And the city of Jerusalem maybe had you know, a few dozen thousand people, maybe around 30,000 people kind of at most were living in the city of Jerusalem. But during the Passover festival, it swelled up to over a million people would come in and they would be sacrificing lambs and they would be celebrating this Passover. So this is a big, buzzworthy time. At the same time, this is where Jesus has essentially, uh, the Bible talks about him turning his face and setting his face towards Jerusalem. Everybody who's around Jesus at this time, they notice things about him that are starting to change. He starts talking different. He stops telling people to, shh, don't tell about who I really am. And then when anybody confesses, you're the Messiah, he's telling them to hush. At this point, Jesus has stopped telling people to hush. He started th- saying things like he, what he said in Mark 10, 45, saying that uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, uh, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. He's, he is letting it known that he is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the chief scribes and Pharisees, and they are going to put him to death, even death on a cross. He is calling what is going to happen. And then they all see him turn and head towards Jerusalem. And so this is one of those times where you can feel the tension. You can feel the angst in the midst of the people who are following Jesus and even the people who are there in Jerusalem who want to see Jesus dead. And then we find this story here in Mark chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2, it says this. You can read along with us. 
It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at Mount Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So again, Jesus kind of says this, and they're kind of like, uh, okay, um, Jesus has obviously told them to do a lot of strange things at this point in their following of Jesus, uh, but this one is probably up there saying, hey, go into town, you're going to find a donkey. You go see that donkey, don't worry about it, just go tell a guy that you're going to supposed to untie that donkey, and if they ask you why you need it, just say Jesus needs it, and they'll go, okay, um, not a good thing to do if you're trying to steal a car, just say, hey, Jesus told me to steal this car, not going to work, um, but nonetheless, this is what happens. And it goes on, verse 3. It says, if anyone asks you why you are doing this, say that the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. And so they adhere to Jesus' command, and the next verse goes on in verse 4. And it says, they went, and they found the colt outside the street, tied to a dory, just the way that Jesus said it was. And as they untied it, again, Jesus called the shot here. Some people standing there asked, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? Like, why are you still in our donkey? And they asked, or they answered, as Jesus told them to, and the people said, okay, that makes sense. That's the key word. You, you answered the, the secret question and the, the, the secret passcode. You answered it right. So we see this passage of Scripture, and at, at surface level we go, hey, this is just Jesus doing some strange thing that we don't really understand and get. But what I want to talk to you about here today is what we can learn through this donkey, what we can learn through this cult. The first thing is that this whole thing that's going down right here is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is, this is an amazing thing that's happened. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to put the, the, the passage up there. But one of the primary uh, fulfillments of prophecy that's actually happening right here that, that had been prophesied for, about Jesus, what Jesus would do from years and years before he ever came on the scene. And this is just Jesus culminating the fact that he wasn't just some guy who popped up on the scene, but he's been a God who existed in eternity uh, future and eternity past. And he's there and now he's bringing it to a culmination in this moment. And the passage is Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9. If you want to read along, it says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, what's beautiful about this is it paints this picture of the type of king that Jesus is. See, Normally a king would come into a, a city, a city that he was either coming back to, uh, that was kind of his home base. If that was kind of what was going on, the king would come into the city riding on a big, giant, majestic war horse. And he'd be riding on a big, majestic war horse, and the captives from the place that he had just conquered would be behind him. But that's not the scene we see here with Jesus. Jesus is, is riding on the supporting character from the movie Shrek. He's riding on a donkey. And what we know about donkeys is, is donkey compared to a majestic white war horse is much more of a humble animal. It is much more of a lowly animal. And that speaks to the type of king and kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. See, most kingdoms and most kings were about pride and power. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, that is not what my kingdom is about. My kingdom is about humility and servanthood. And because of that, I'm going to ride a beast of burden. And it's going to be a lowly animal. And it points to this fact of what Paul was diving into in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. He talks about Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. 
And then he goes on to say, it's because of this, because of how humble and low Jesus went, that he was willing to, to ride a donkey. He was willing to ride that donkey into Jerusalem, or get off that donkey, and then flip over tables in the court in Jerusalem, and then be persecuted and whooped and put on a cross and then raised victorious. Because he was willing to go to the lowest of lows, God has now exalted him to the highest of highs. And see, that's the power that is contained in the gospel here. And that's what's happening. Another one of uh, these, this awesome verse, and it's all the way back in the book of Genesis, that talks about what is actually happening here in this scene that we see kind of start off Palm Sunday, is in Genesis 49. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there to Genesis 49. I'll set it up a little bit as you're getting there. In Genesis 49, Jacob... Um, Jacob, Jacob is, is giving his sons this blessing. He's given his sons who eventually become uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's giving them all these individual blessings. And then he turns to his son Judah, and, and this is what he says of Judah. Now, one of the things you need to know about Judah before I read you the scripture, Judah, the, the son Judah is the son through which Jesus' lineage comes through. And so this is the, the, the kind of the heavenly line, the, the family bloodline, the, the branch through which Jesus comes through. And he's saying this over Judah. This is what he says in Genesis 49, 9-11. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse him? And then he goes on to say, the scepter will not depart from Judah. That's his way of saying uh, the scepter. That's what the king has. That's his tool. That's how people know that he is the one who is ruling. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until, catch this, he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. See, it's all coming in to fruition here. And Jesus, again, he's not just saying, hey, I, I mean, we're, we're kind of keeping it really frugal here in this season, so we're just going to get a little bit of donkey. We're not going to go try to get no big stallion. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not penny-pinching. He is pointing to the fulfillment of Scripture, and he's trying to help people understand one critical thing, especially, I believe, in this Genesis passage. The point that he's making here is this. He's saying, in a few days... I want you to understand something. In a few days, you are going to see me sacrificed as a sacrificial lamb. But then in three days later, you are going to hear the lion of Judah let out its resurrection roar as I am raised victorious and I have victory over death. See, he's painting this picture and he's helping them understand. You may see me here in a little while as the lamb, but I am still the lion of Judah and you're going to hear resurrection's roar. And he's painting that picture as he invites them to go and do this. And see, the lesson here for all of us, I think, in, in understanding what's going on with this donkey who gets six verses worth of Scripture in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that Jesus is sovereign. That things aren't happening to Jesus as he's going about that are accidents. He is in control, and he is not figuring things out as he goes along which is the exact opposite of what we're living in right now. I mean, so much of this whole coronavirus life right now is we're just figuring this out as we go. Like you're figuring out how to be a lunch lady. We're figuring out how to be homeschool parents. We're figuring out, okay, what does it mean to shelter in place? What type of business is essential? What does church look like? So much of this season is defined by we're just figuring it out as we go. And man, I don't know about you, 
But for someone who craves control like I do, this whole idea of just figuring it out as I go is nerve-wracking. It makes me want to pull my hair out. It makes me want to just, you know, go, okay, let's just, let's just spend 17 days kind of locked in and just, you know, we're just going to sleep this out and wait till it's over. Because all of us, we have a hard time with the unknown. And so Jesus in this passage, I think, speaks into directly our situation that we're in right now. Is that Jesus knows exactly what is going on. And though it may seem like we are all just figuring it out as we go. There is nothing that is happening right now that is surprising to our King Jesus. He is not figuring out coronavirus as he goes. And so I want you to hear in this. Is that if Jesus can bring good out of a cross and a crown of thorns. Then I am confident that he can bring good out of the coronavirus. I'm confident that he can bring good out of you being laid off. I'm confident that he can bring good out of us not being able to gather together and meet in person. I'm confident that he can bring good about things. If a cross and a crown of thorns can be part of God's redemptive plan, I'm just crazy enough to believe that a virus called corona can be part of his redemptive plan. And this thing called a donkey is kind of what hinges this and it shows us this. And one of the other things that we can learn from this is about the crowd. You know, there's the donkey and then the, the, you know, the, the, the camera kind of shifts a little bit and it goes to the crowd and what the guys are doing and what the crowd around them is doing. If you've got a Bible, you can go to uh, Mark 11, verse 7 through 8, and this is what it says there. It says, then they brought the colt to see Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks out on the ground while others spread branches that they had cut from the fields. See, we call this Sunday Palm Sunday, but honestly, guys, it could be called Cloak Sunday or Tunic Sunday. Because the significance in this idea of a cloak or a tunic, what these guys would have had on, and them taking this off and laying it down on the ground so that somebody would be able to walk over it's sometimes lost in translation because we in our society, we have a different pair of clothes, a different pair of underwear, a different pair of socks for every single day of the week and then some, hopefully. But for them, their cloak, their big outer garment was what they wore every single day. Most people only had one. And the sign that was happening here as they took that off and laid that down, it was essentially them saying, I am laying down my identity, who I am at your feet. And it's their way of saying, you are a king who is above me and I am below you. It was a sign of humility that they were laying their self down for Jesus. That they are saying, you are the king, we are not the king, we're submitting to you, we want to be led by you. But what's fascinating about this is the same group of people who in one scene here in the triumphal entry are throwing branches and cloaks down at Jesus' feet and the next couple of days are throwing insults at him and demanding that he be crucified. See, crowds change very fast. And that's one of the other things that's kind of crazy about this time is, 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 is the aspect of, of crowds. And the crowds have changed a lot about your life. One, the fact that you're not able to be around them, and then the fact that a lot of the crowd gets to the food or the toilet paper or whatever resource before you get there, and it creates more anxiety. Mark eleven nine, 9, the story keeps going. It says that those who went ahead and those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then verse 10, 
He kind of repeat the same refrain. refrain. Blessed is he is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I want you to understand something about this crowd. Because it's easy to kind of write them off as, as, as this group of people who were just, you know, had this mob mentality and just did not know what, what was going on. What I want you to understand is the crowd, they actually had the right motivation. They had the right motivation, but they had the wrong expectation. They were motivated behind Jesus being this guy who was a conquering king. But the way that they expected him to become that king and, and, and bring his kingdom to earth and bring his kingdom to fruition there in Jerusalem was very different than what he actually did. See, these were a group of people in the, in the Jewish society that he was in, and this was the people who were lining these streets. The people in that crowd were, had been oppressed by the Roman rule. That the whole city of Jerusalem, which had been their holy city, was now really uh, under reign by the Roman Empire. And they had the control. And so these people were longing for the glory days. They, the people in the crowd, were make Jerusalem great again people. They longed to see their, their nation rise back up to what it had been in the past. And the big question I had for you in this is what do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations. For you specifically, and again, take it out of this whole season that we're in right now, because we definitely have a lot of different expectations going on right now, but what do you do, like in life? What's your default when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? For some of you, I believe, watching this, you've had a time where Jesus didn't meet your expectations, and it's made you pretty much just give up on him. And you're kind of sitting back, arms crossed, just kind of going, Jesus, like you've let me down before, and if, if, and if we're ever going to have a relationship, it, it's going to mean that you take the first step and you come after me. Some of you, when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, you just go and you solve it yourself. You say, Jesus, you couldn't meet my expectations, so I'm going to meet it my own way. Jesus, you couldn't calm the, the, the nervousness and the anxiety, and so I'm going to go to the bottle. Or I'm going to go smoke, smoke five blunts. We, we, we meet our own expectations in different ways. And what I want you to understand in this is oftentimes, Jesus loves us enough, and I said I mean that. He loves us enough to bypass what we want to give us what we actually need. And so the question is, are you willing to trust Jesus enough to let him bypass what you want to give you what you actually need? And I don't know what that looks like in this season. I'm trying to figure out, Jesus, I know all the things that I want in this season that is social distancing and shelter in place. I know the things that I want. I know the things that I crave. I know how bad I miss being around my church family. I know how bad I miss being able to use as many rolls of toilet paper or sheets of toilet paper as I want. I know how bad I miss these things. But Jesus, would you help me to find what you need for me in this? And so when you think about your own life, I want to ask you, are you willing to trust him? And we want to trust him in the midst of this with your expectations because they're very fluid right now. And one of the things I want you to know about expectations is that if Jesus always met your expectations, then he could never exceed them. Like if he did it all the way that you want it to be done, then he could never exceed your expectations. And I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't meet all my expectations because then there would be no chance for him to blow my mind and allow me to be able to worship him. All the things that I've prayed for and I've seen God go way out far in advance of, I'm so thankful for. 
And I believe that he is capable of doing that even now. So when you look at this crowd, you see them shout this word, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, Hosanna. In this word Hosanna, again, it, it meant please save us now. And the people, I need you to understand, when, when they said Jesus save us, they were not begging Jesus for an eternal like faith salvation. When they were asking Jesus to save them, it wasn't save us from our sins, save us so that now we can be a part of God's family forever, save us so we can be redeemed, save us. That's not what they were asking. When they said save us, they were saying save us from the Romans. Save us from them. And in Luke's gospel, Luke has the same story in here, and and it talks about how Jesus, he hears them screaming out and, and crying out, Lord, save us. And one of the things that that I know about Jesus and we see as a proof throughout the gospel is Jesus was not only able to hear people's words, but he also was able to hear their hearts. And in Luke's gospel, we see this picture of Jesus hearing them cry out for him, but at the same time, we see Jesus crying for the people. He was heartbroken for these people who were crying out in adoration for him. And he was heartbroken for them because they wanted him to save them from the wrong thing. They thought the worst thing that they had going for them were Romans. And here's the deal, guys. I think sometimes Jesus' heart breaks for us because we, I mean, and definitely we used to, we'd gather together in churches and, and we'd sing out and we asked Jesus to save us from stuff. Save us from stuff like a bad marriage. Save us from stuff uh, like a prodigal kid. Save us from stuff like a financial ruin. Save us from stuff like addiction or, or pornography. Save us from all these different things. And I think sometimes Jesus is up in heaven and he is tearful because he sees us begging and crying out for us to save him from these things, not knowing that the true thing that we need to be saved from is ourselves. And our sin. And the way Satan would worm his way into our lives and get us to be distracted by all these extracurricular things that are in our life and take our focus off of him. And so while they were cheering for Jesus, he was crying for them. And so I ask you this question. What is it that you really want Jesus to save you from? What is it? Saving you from how coronavirus can affect your your finances, saving you from um, losing your job, saving you from what what is it that you are most concerned that he would save you from? For those of you who maybe listen to to, to this message or you're watching this and you have not received salvation from Jesus, I I I would beg that you open your heart to him enough to realize that while a virus could potentially kill your body, there is something that can destroy your soul. And that thing that can destroy your soul is sin. And the only way to conquer sin, the only way uh, to to get out of the pain of sin is Jesus' grace, the blood that he shed on a cross for you. And my prayer is that you would surrender your life to him, that you would repent of your sins and that you would allow his life to now be lived through you. For those of you who are maybe listening to me and you have put Jesus as the center of your life, you have nothing more to be afraid of. And see, the crowd, they have not changed a whole lot than the crowds that we find ourselves in. The crowd, they wanted Jesus to use his power to accomplish their agenda. 
And, and we're very similar. Like Jesus, I know you're powerful. I know you have all these capabilities. Will you use your power to do my agenda, to do my thing? But, but here's the deal. Here's what I want you to understand about life. And I've figured this out the hard way. Jesus only funds his ideas. Jesus only uh, moves down the line the things that are actually on his agenda. He has no desire to move the things that are on your agenda, that aren't on his, down the line. And the faster you can get those things to line up, the easier life is going to be for you. And the crowd turned fast. And one of the things that I see in this crowd and how fast they turned is that emotional enthusiasm cannot replace true discipleship. That, that our ability to come in and, and have these emotional moments where we all get around Jesus and rah, rah, Jesus. Those moments are so short of true discipleship. And here's one of the things that, that I'm, I'm trying to lean into in the Holy Spirit's guidance in this. I, I find myself asking, what if part of God's redemptive plan and part of his strategy to take what the enemy meant for good or what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good through this whole season of corona is take our our churches to take every single one of our churches attention off of growing a crowd and to put that attention back on building disciples what if what if that's actually what he's doing in this because here's one of the things i mean i feel like this as a pastor and maybe you feel like this even as just a regular christian what if the crowd has been a crutch what if for, for all of us, the crowd is really this crutch that helps our faith kind of just limp and limp and limp and limp on? Like you take the crowd out of it and your ability to sneak into a church service, kind of sit in the back, get fed a little bit and go home and have your kids, you know, hang out in children's ministry and do all that type of stuff. What if actually that has been a crutch for your faith? And Jesus, through his redemptive plan of this coronavirus season, has kicking that crutch out from under his church that he loves and saying, I want you to learn how to make disciples where you are, to lean into and leverage relationships. What if the crowd was a church? What if the crowd was a crutch? You know, I think about this, this aspect of a crowd, and, and that's what gets me most fired up about what we can do through this season to build relationships, to build families, to connect with people on a real level. I've loved seeing the Zoom calls that have taken place. I love being able to be on a Zoom call last night with some other men of God and, and just talk about our families, talk about our marriages, talk about what we're struggling with, just laugh and have fun. I think those are the things that God is getting us back to. He, he's, he's bringing us back into these sacred places called homes and allowing you guys as parents who are, who are watching this now to be disciple makers for your children. And not depend on as, as a church and their resources and their life group leaders and their teachers as the sole proprietor of, of spiritual influence into your kid's life. I love it. And I'm excited about it. I do have a fear, though, that some of us may not rise to the occasion. Because fertile ground for growth is also a fertile ground for the enemy to swoop in and steal what could grow during the season. And my prayer is that you would stay in tune enough with him that you are able to gather in and lean into him and see the king that he is. The last thing I want to point to you in this passage of scripture is this idea of a crown. 
And and what we see here in this passage is that the crowd, they wanted to crown Jesus the new king. They wanted to see the lineage of of David and Solomon restored. And and they wanted to be back in the lap of luxury like they had experienced in the good old days. And how that had been passed down from generation to generation of what it was like under those guys' rule. And so you think about a crown. A crown is a symbol of, of a rule and a reign. And they wanted to see Jesus with a crown upon his head. But what actually ended up happening is they never were able to see Jesus with a crown of gold on his head. What they actually ended up seeing was a crown of mockery on his head because he had a crown of thorns. That they cried out, crucify, crucify, crucify. And the Roman soldiers made this crown of thorns and put it on his head. And we see in this the reality that all of this, I believe, is part of God's plan. I even think what we're going through right now has, has an ability for us to lean into his word because one of the things that you may or may not know about this, uh, but corona, the coronavirus, you know, what we're in right now, corona is actually the Latin word for crown. It's a Latin word for crown, and it's called the coronavirus, and it's called the, kind of, kind of the crown virus because of the way that the coronavirus cell looks. The coronavirus cell looks like um, it has kind of these crown-like things on the top of it. And because it has those rigid things, it matches up well when the coronavirus is able to come in. It matches well with an animal cell or a human cell, and that's what allows it to be able to stick and actually infect at the rate at which it does. And so my question for you, if this is the, the crown virus, is, is the coronavirus living up to its namesake in your life? Like, is the crown virus, is the coronavirus ruling your thought life? Or, or, or maybe if it isn't this, what, what is ruling your thought life right now? What's ruling your attention? Who is ruling? Is it King Virus or is it King Jesus? What is ruling in your life right now? What is reigning? And my my invitation to you is to take whatever that thing is off of the throne of your life and understand that Jesus is the only worthy king. That he is a king who comes in in humility. That he is a king who comes in and is willing to serve and to lay his life down for the sake of other people. That he is a king who's willing to say, I am willing to face all of your anxiety, all of your pain, all of your fear. I'm willing to go to a cross to redeem and to save you. I'm that type of king. But here's the deal. As we see Jesus in this story of the triumphal entry, in the story of Palm Sunday, as we see him come in on a lowly donkey entering into the city, I've got to warn you, that is not the way he will come back into the holy city of Jerusalem. See, the Bible prophesies that the next time that Jesus comes, it will not be on a donkey. If you've got a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 19. Listen to the animal that he comes in now. Listen to what it's going to be like when he actually comes and he restores the world. This is what it says in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John, the guy who was there and saw Jesus on the cross, a guy who was there walking beside Jesus as he was entering into this triumphal entry, he's a guy who had this vision from God of what it was going to look like when the end finally happened. So if you wonder, okay, what's it going to be like when it ends? What's the end going to be like? This is what it says. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John says, I saw heaven standing open. 
And there before me was a white horse, no more donkeys, a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. In your Bible, that F and that T are capitalized because that's our Savior Jesus. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and his head on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with the iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God, and on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, the first time he entered into Jerusalem, he came in on a donkey, he came in in humility, but the next time that he comes into our city, he is going to come in majesty. He is going to come to judge the quick and the dead. He is going to come to make right what the enemy has made wrong. And my my question here, again, echoing back to the verse that I talked about at the very beginning, in in Philippians 2, 6 through 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And, and what's happening here, you got to see this, is the fact that Jesus humbled himself to the lowest of low, that God, through that humility, has now exalted him to the highest place possible. And God would not, as a good loving father, let his son go that low so that every other piece of creation, human, animal, rocks, trees, everything, would not at some point call out and recognize that he is in fact the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my prayer is that for all of us, regardless of where we stand on that, that that second triumphal entry, that triumphal return for you and me, that is one that we look forward to. That is one that we can rest easy knowing that we are on the right side of that battle and that war. And that we will stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful service. And we'll enter into a rest. And if that's not you, we want to help. We want to help you find out who Jesus really is and you give your life to him. Because he is inviting us into this grand banquet, this grand table. And and that's what we're getting ready to experience in communion. So I invite you even now to to get whatever elements that you have uh, ready for communion. If you're watching this not on the live feed, just press pause and go get what you need. But what I love about this passage here is, is Jesus comes in. He finishes the battle. And then heaven speaks of this grand and great banquet that we get to enter into. Because... His blood was shed, his body was broken, and his life was given for us on the cross, and he rose victorious as that lion of Judah from the grave. And communion for us is what points to that eternal heavenly home and the victory that we will get to celebrate around the same table as our King, our Father, and the Holy Spirit who now resides within us. I invite you to get your elements for communion. Again, we know on that night that he was to be betrayed. He held up a piece of bread, 
unleavened bread there at the Passover feast, and he uh, culminated the Passover feast in a way that had not been done yet. And he tore the, the bread, and he said, this is uh, now going to be my body. It used to represent a bread that helped you get out of Egypt fast because it didn't even have time to rise, but now it represents how my body will be broken and torn. And the temple, the temple garment, the, the, the big temple shroud that divided humans from the presence of God, that has now been ripped wide open as well. And now you can talk and you can communicate with a living and active God, even now in communion. I don't need a priest. I don't, I don't need a bishop. I don't need somebody with a white collar. I don't need somebody on the other side of a screen. I, I have the ability right now to communicate with a living and breathing active God. And he said, every time that you eat of this, remember that this was like my body that was broken for you. I invite you now to, to taste and remember that body that was broken for you. Jesus then held up a vat of wine and looked at his, his close friends, even one through which he knew would betray him, and said, this is my blood poured out as a new covenant, a new promise that I will not leave you or forsake you, that you do have a place in my kingdom, that I am a good king, and that my king's not going to look like what you always expect it to look like, but it will always be what's best for you, even though it felt like what was not best for me. He says, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of all mankind. The blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you would, I'd invite you to take a moment just there in the, the quietness of your own home or car or, or wherever you may be watching this to take a second and just commune with Jesus commune with your king talk to him tell him your fears tell him your hopes he's listening Jesus, you are a good king. I thank you for not being what we expect you to be. Jesus, I pray for my friends all around the country and maybe even further, God, who are, who are leaning into you right now. God, as we turn our attention to Holy Week, God, a week that in the upper story of heaven and even the lower story of earth below, God, was wrought with tension, with pain, with strife. As you knew your one and only begotten Son was getting ready to die for the sins of all mankind. And Jesus, as you know, you were getting ready for the first time ever to experience what it was like to not be connected with the Father. I pray that your people, 
God, with hopefully less distractions than ever before. God, this holy week is going to be unlike any holy week ever on planet Earth. We will have never experienced anything like this before. And I pray, God, that your church is awakened to what you want her to get out of this. Let us not miss it. In your name, amen.